And, and the reason I'm saying this is because I've, I've had a number of people share with me this week, and so I just I, I think God's put this on my heart, and it kind of ties in with our message today. When you get up in the morning, you need to have a view such that you need to develop this habit in your life. I think it's very, very important. You say, Lord, it's you and me today. Lord, it's you and me today. I do not know what you have in store for me today. But I know you're faithful. I do not know what you have in store. But I know you're faithful. And I know you'll strengthen me. And I know you'll help me. My trust is in you. Every single one of us must learn what it means to live on the knife edge of faith moment by moment. Because the enemy is out to destroy us. The enemy is out to discourage us. The enemy is out to deceive us. And he will seek to use any means that he has at his disposal. And sometimes, hidden only in God's counsels that we can't comprehend, things happen that we can't fully account for and explain. And he will stimulate us to curse God. But in the face of unexplainable things, beloved, we must know God is faithful. His purposes are good, righteous, and true. Though we may not understand them fully, we say, Lord, I'm here for your sake. I'm in this marriage for your sake. I'm in this job for your sake. I'm in this tight place for your sake. I will endure this for your sake. It's you and me. Does that help anybody? I hope so. I sure hope so. Open your Bibles to Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy, Numbers chapter 22. I was just talking about Deuteronomy down, down the street. Numbers chapter 22. Now, if you're new with us, a couple of things. We as a congregation this year are committed to studying through the Bible in one year. That means we're taking huge chunks of Scripture each week and surveying them. Uh, we are using as our text this year for the Bible, it's called the Daily Bible, and it's arranged in daily readings, and those readings are in chronological order. In other, in other words, in the order of events in which they happened in uh, the Bible. Uh, most Bibles, obviously, are, are not arranged in chronological order, and so if you're following along with us in a regular Bible, uh, I'm going to be jumping back and forth between different chapters, and I'll try to remember to say we're over here, we're over here now, and you'll be flipping some pages. Those of you that are following along in the Daily Bible obviously will not have to flip back and forth. Hopefully, everybody is, if, you're, if this is your church, hopefully you're all reading throughout the week. This is very, very important. Because as you read, I'm able to come back and hit the high points and, and, and summarize what's going on in that major section of Scripture so that it begins to make sense to you, those things that don't make sense, and then you follow up the following week when you go to mini-church to, to bring all that stuff to bear in your own life, make application of it in your own life. In other words, I read all this stuff, Zach talked to us about this, this is what I'm doing with it. See, that's what you do in mini-church. You come to grips with it, and you make your own personal application, and you testify to the people in your mini-church what you're doing. 
In other words, you're putting yourself in a place of accountability. Very, very important. Okay? So that's where we're coming from. Now, if you're with us this morning and you're not a Christian, uh, I want to encourage you. You're going to be here, oh, roughly another hour or so. You might as well just relax and uh, don't dig your heels in. Don't be resistant. Best you're able, set aside any cultural, intellectual, philosophical biases you may have against Jesus because it all focuses right on Jesus. The J word. <laughs> people very polite talk about God, but when you start talking about Jesus, people get awfully uncomfortable. And so I, I just want to encourage you, just relax, set aside your biases, and listen. Be intellectually honest enough to listen and sit there just in your own heart and say, all right, is this all true? Should I really believe in Jesus? Is he the only way? And if you're really seriously interested in knowing, God knows your heart, he reads your heart, and he will find a way to communicate to you. He's that creative. And then at the end of the service, if he's talked to you in our time, then I'd like to give you an opportunity for you also to put your faith in Jesus Christ. We'll give you an invitation. So you just bear that in mind. If you're with us this morning, you're not a Christian yet, okay? Now, as we look into our, our uh, passage under discussion this morning, we're going to go through the book of Numbers, complete Numbers, go into Deuteronomy. We're just going to quickly survey Deuteronomy at the end. It's all in your notes. And I just want to run through those things with you. I want to focus, right, the most of our time on this issue with Balaam and Balak, this account, beginning in chapter 22, and its, its, its ramifications. But as we look, prepare to look in there, there's two lessons that I think are imperative that we glean. So I'm going to tell you what I want you to learn, then I'm going to describe it in the passage, and then when we're done, I'm going to tell you what I told you. Here's what I want you to get out of our time this morning. First, God has a plan. God has a purpose. And nothing can thwart his plan and purpose. Nothing can thwart his plan and purpose. And if we understand that he has a plan and a purpose, and he's moving in a very distinct direction, you say, well, what's his plan and purpose? His plan and purpose is to establish his kingdom in our life to save us and to bring himself glory. That's in a nutshell what his plan and purpose is. Now, if we understand his plan and purpose, and if his plan and purpose is undeterred by any person or anything, then it would behoove us to get in line with his plan and purpose. Does that make sense? It's like the wind is blowing in a certain direction. The wind is blowing, you better get your sail up and get involved. Because if you don't, you're going to be left behind. Do you remember the rich young ruler? Jesus interviewed him. He had an agenda of his own. He was unwilling to get involved in God's agenda. The wind was blowing. He didn't get his sail up, and he was left behind. I want you to notice in that passage, too, that Jesus never chased him down. He let him go. Jesus respected his right to make a foolish decision. And he didn't chase him down. So it's important for us to understand that, that God gives us the capacity to make choices. He wants us to make wise choices in line with his plan and program, but he'll also allow you to make foolish plans and programs. But he, that won't deter his plan, his program. So get in line. The second major lesson I want you to learn is this. And it's eloquently... Uh, spoken of in James chapter 4, verse 4 in the New Testament, and that is this. Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world 
becomes an enemy of God. Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. That does not mean that we're not to have non-believing friends. Uh, we're encouraged to reach out to the world. We're encouraged to develop relationships with non-believers, genuine relationships with non-believers. Why? So that we could convey to them good news. We could share with them that God desires to save them, that Jesus died for them also. So not being a friend with the world doesn't mean we're not, have not, not to have non-Christian friends. It means that we are not to buy into the philosophies of the world any longer. We're not to buy into the way of the world. And the remnants of the world that still retain in us, that remain in us, that we are to do away with them. We are to cleanse ourselves of those things. We are not, in short, to compromise our testimony. <coughs> and every one of us experience the pressure and the tension of that nearly every single day in our life, don't we? Paul says in Romans chapter 12, he says, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world. Don't let the world stick you into its mold anymore. Don't compromise. Stand for what is right. Stand for me. Stand for the truth. You don't have to compromise. I will empower you. I'll give you strength. I'll enable you. Stand for the truth. Does this make sense? Now, all the time, you're going to find yourself, as, you're, as you live in the world, and as you begin to stand for the truth, people begin to see that you are different. That it, as the song that Alan sang, that I, 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 I'm making a decision to be holy, I'm yours, Lord, so forth. People are going to see that you're distinctly different. They're going to be fascinated with your life. Do you know that? What's your name? Ben. Ben. Ben, are you a Christian? Yes, I am. Love Jesus Christ. Yeah, I love Jesus All right. Christ. Now, do the people around you, where you work and, and, and where you interact, do the people see that in your life? Are they fascinated with I you? I think they do. Are they fascinated with you? And do they hate you at the same time? <laughs> One might never know. Yes. 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 They may not say it to you, but, but you've got to know that if you are a person who is seeking to live out his Christianity moment by moment, by faith, people are going to be utterly fascinated with you, and then they're also going to hate you. And especially when you begin to step on their toes, I won't step on your toes, <laughs> and you begin to encroach on their territory, then that resentment is going to begin to be evidenced. Now the question is, do you see this in your own life? Because if you don't see it in your life, that's only a sign that probably you are still being a friend of the world. You are compromising. Now, God says, you shall be what? Holy. Holy because I'm holy. God is not being unreasonable. If you think he's being unreasonable, then you are in the wrong place and you are not getting with his program. It's very important. There is some great cost to being holy. Do you know that? A great cost to being holy. Now, I'm not talking about being self-righteous. I'm not talking about being judgmental. I'm not talking about going to your non-believing friends and say, well, you're just a wretched old terrible person, and I'm better than you are. No, no. No, not at all. But you're going to them, and you, because of how you live your life, have the basis and have the, the foundation to be able to go and say, you know, I want to share with you some good news. Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, he says he's not ashamed of the gospel because he knows that it's the power of God to set people free. 
And there are lots and lots of Christians who don't know the power of God to set them free because they don't believe the good news. And, and therefore, they will not go share it with others. They continue to compromise. So those two principles. God has got a plan and a program. He wants us involved, and he is undeterred. And secondly, we are not to be friends with the world. We are to be a distinct and holy people. Now, Israel needs to learn these two lessons, and we need to learn these two lessons. And very often, as you study uh, Israel's history, you see that they learn these lessons painfully over and over and over again. Quite frankly, I wonder if they ever really learned them. But also the same thing is true for us in the church. We've got to get with God's program. God's program. God's program. Very often we get God's program mixed up with our program. And we try to get God doing our program rather than us doing his program. Right? All right. Now Israel needed to understand, in, the, in that context, needed to understand precisely the real nature, the real character of the heathen religions that were practiced around them and practiced by the nations that lived in the promised land at the time in opposition to the kingdom of God and, and God's principles and his program. They need to understand the difference. We're not just talking about political differences. We're talking about real, palpable, spiritual differences that were in absolute opposition to the kingdom of God. Israel was to see that the two were absolutely incompatible. Incompatible. You couldn't have friendship with those nations in the sense of having intimate relationship and cohabitating with them. No alliance could be formed between them. No dialogue cultivated. Nor even the presence of those religions and, the, and, the, and heathenism even being tolerated in their midst, in the midst of Israel. Now, if you understand biblical Judaism and biblical Christianity accurately, you will see that both of those systems of, of belief and faith are incredibly intolerant. Incredibly intolerant. As you talk with people, and I'm sure you've heard this because I hear it all the time, when they find out you're a Christian, a born-again Christian, one of those born-agains, they say invariably, if they are not one of those born-agains, they say, you know, I have a problem with you born-agains. And the problem is that you guys are awfully intolerant. You are very narrow. You say yours is the only way. And we say, yes. That's right. Because that's what Jesus said. Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. Now, we don't say it arrogantly. We just say it because it's the truth. Because we've been convinced of it. And because we see the fruit of it born out in our own lives. So Christianity is extremely intolerant. God is calling Israel to be extremely intolerant, not to be influenced by the world around them and by the religions of the world around them, by the heathen practices that those nations and religions practiced. And so the lesson for us is identical to that. Now, again, as some background, I want to give you a little understanding before we jump into this passage about Balaam and Balak. I'll give you some background because it's important to understand the cultural context Heathen beliefs, the world system beliefs of those religions at that time, was such 
that they were all contrary to God. In fact, one of the reasons God gives the Mosaic Law and he gives the Ten Commandments that we reviewed a couple weeks ago was that the Ten Commandments are things that are absolutely contrary to everything that heathenism stands for. They were to give the nation of Israel a specific identity and reflect God's character. Now they would acknowledge God, the God of the Hebrews. They even knew his name. They even knew him as Yahweh or Jehovah or uh, in our translation, the Lord. We see this reflected in Balaam's experience. They even knew his name. But they did not recognize the God of the Hebrews as the one, only, true, living God. They recognized him only as the national deity of the Hebrew people, much as they had their national deity, and this nation over there had their national deity. The question for them was, which deity was the strongest? Who had the most power? Now, as evidenced by Israel's recent conquests and by their reputation as of coming out of Egypt 40 years earlier, I mean, that word had spread all throughout the ancient Near East. Everybody knew that the God of the Hebrews had destroyed Egypt, had destroyed the Egyptian army, all their power, reduced them to a second-rate world power. Now, in our day and age, we don't recognize in our material view of things, which is substantially uh, bereft of a, of, of a spiritual view of things, we don't understand culturally that there are spiritual powers dictating and governing what's going on. We just look politically, economically, sociologically, uh, psychologically. We look at, the, at this level. But the ancient people weren't like that. They knew that there were gods and powers that influenced the seen realm. Now, the question for them, again, is, is their God going to be able to withstand this other God? Israel had experienced tremendous victories. In chapter 21, most recently, two tremendous victories over two very powerful kingdoms had been experienced by Israel. And behind that was Israel's God making that possible. So, with that in mind, King Balak, now there's a whole bunch of B names here. There's Balak, who's the king, Balaam, who's a prophet, uh, Baal, who is the god of the Midianites and the Moabites, uh, Beor, I mean, there's a whole bunch of names, they're all being with B, so you have to keep those straight. But the point is, is that According to these uh, heathen belief systems, the, uh, the magicians or the prophets, the seers, the conjurers, the people like Balaam who were the dealers with the gods, these people believed that these magicians had strong, influential, indeed in some cases absolute power over these gods. And the power was inherent in the, 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 the magician or inherent in the incantations that he would use. So he could very easily manipulate this God to do what he wanted. So now here's Balak, King Balak. He's got Israel now camped on his doorstep. A huge throng of a nation. He's just wiped out two other nations. Balak is freaked out. He's threatened. 
Would you be nervous if the Hells Angels moved in across the street from you? I mean, that's what it's like for him. He's absolutely scared to death. Now, he calls on Balaam. Balaam is, comes from a city way up in northern Mesopotamia, northern Iraq today, on the, on the Euphrates River, and he comes from a family of magicians. There's some evidence that his father was a great and renowned magician, he, and Balaam is a renowned magician in his day. Balak calls on him for help. Now, part of the thought of the day was that since these magicians had this incredible power and influence with these gods, these national deities, that here is Israel camped on Balak's doorstep. Get Balaam down here to influence the Hebrew God, to bring influence to bear. If, if he can't do that, influence Baal, the, the, the heathen god, in such a way that he can somehow <clears throat> overpower Yahweh. But if he can't overpower Yahweh, then influence Yahweh to desert the Hebrews and come over to his side. Do you see that? That's all the thinking behind this. These guys really had power. Do you remember in um, Pharaoh's court when Moses did the miracle with the, with the rod and it turned into a serpent? And then, uh, and then Pharaoh's magician said, that's no big deal, and they threw their rods down and a whole, a whole bunch of serpents? That's magic. That's magic. That's what we're talking about. That's a very real thing. There's black magic. That's a term we use. That's demonically inspired. Now these prophets, they understood power. They had power. And they utilized it. And so Balaam is going to try to exert his influence and his power over God to dissuade God. Now with that in mind, let's look at this passage. Okay? Now again, Balaam is a, a professional magician, a professional dealer with the gods, and he is going to seek to enter into a professional relationship with the God of the Hebrews. But as he seeks to enter into a professional relationship with the God of the Hebrews, he does not advance a single step beyond the mere heathen point of view. In other words, he never does attain a relationship with God. There's lots and lots of people who say they know about God, but they don't know him. They do not have an intimate, personal relationship with him. Okay, let's look at this passage. Chapter 22, the first three verses, we see Balak is confronted with uh, Israel camped on his doorstep. Uh, Forty years of wandering are over. Two recent battles have occurred. Israel is poised to cross the Jordan River to take possession of the Promised Land. Balak will form an alliance with the Midianite people who are his neighbors, hoping that with their alliance they'll have enough power, influence, and money, and money to somehow stop Israel. Little does Balak know that God has already spoken to Moses and told him, to not lay a hand on Moab, to circumvent. Balak doesn't even know this. He's not even, there's not a threat to him. But he is still going to uh, operate out of panic and seek help from outside. Now, they send a delegation up to Balaam, up in Pethor, 
And he says in uh, this section, he says, a people has come out of Egypt, they cover the face of the land, and have settled next to me. Now come and put a curse on these people, because they are too powerful for me. Perhaps I will be able to defeat them and drive them out of the country, for I know that those you bless are blessed, those you curse are cursed. Whose prerogative is it to bless and curse? Really. It's God's prerogative, isn't it? Okay? But, but Balaam has some power, and Balak knows this. So he's calling on him to come down and curse Israel. So Balaam, the elders of, of Moab and Medium, leave. They take with them the fee for divination, in other words, the money that they've got to pay Balaam. And they come to Balaam. Balaam says, well, spend the night here, and I'll bring you back the answer the Lord gives me. Now, I want you to notice the word here that's used. He says, I'll give, bring you back the answer the Lord gives me. Now, when you read through the Old Testament, this is significant. When you read through the Old Testament, when you see the word Lord used, and it's used by God or his representative, it's always in the context of a covenant relationship. Now, Balaam is presuming that he's going to have a relationship with God, so he uses his personal name. I'll see what Yahweh tells me. Now, he knows that Yahweh, he knows Yahweh, knows all about him. But he doesn't have a relationship with him. And this is evidence in the next, next section here. So the Moabite princess stayed with him. Look at the next sentence. Who comes to Balaam? Who does? God. Does it say the Lord comes to Balaam? No, God comes. It's kind of like his generic name, Elohim. God comes, not the Lord. The Lord meaning referring to covenant relationship. So God, the creator, the sovereign, comes to Balaam. And he says, who are these men with you? In other words, what's going on here? Do you suppose that God doesn't know what's going on? He knows exactly what's going on. Now this is fascinating because Moses... And the Israelites have no clue of what's going on. This is, this is like an aside to the main story. God's plan, he's working with Israel. Israel's down in the camp. They're getting ready to go across the Jordan River, take the promised land. And all the while, there's plotting going against them behind the scenes they don't have a clue about. The same thing is going on against you and I. When you are getting ready to move into the promised land, and we'll talk about what the promised land is, when you are growing and maturing, just in fact, if you're a Christian, there are powers that are plotting against you. They're plotting against you. The powers know they can't get God to abandon you, so they're plotting to get you to abandon him. They want to trip you up, deceive you. But all the while, God is faithful. And this whole account of Balaam and Balak demonstrates God's faithfulness in dealing in this situation completely unknown to Israel. I mean, they don't have a clue of what's going on here. Only we do and God does. All right, so now God comes to Balaam. Then Balaam says to God, Balak, son of Zippor, king of Moab, sent me this message. A couple of uh, people has come out of Egypt, covers the face of the land. Now come and put a curse on them for me. Perhaps then I'll be able to fight them and drive them away. But God says to Balaam. Now, God gives him a threefold command. 
First of all, do not go with them. Secondly, you must not put a curse on those people. And thirdly, because they are blessed. So God gives him specific instructions and a specific rationale for those instructions. Now look at how Balaam reflects what God has said to these emissaries that have come from Balak. The next morning, Balaam got up and said to Balak's princes, uh, Go back to your own country, for the Lord has refused to let me go with you. Is that an accurate reflection of what God has said? No. No. Balaam is not deliberately slighting God's word in the sense that he's just neglectful. Balaam is being very cagey. One, he's holding out for more money, so he doesn't give them the full scoop. Secondly, he believes he really can influence Yahweh. He just wants to up the ante. That's all he wants. And so the emissaries go back to Balak, and all they tell Balak is this. Balaam refused to come with us. So there's a, a further diminution or watering down of what God has said. Now Balak buys into this. Balak sent other princes more numerous and more distinguished than the first. In other words, he's sending some heavyweights now. Some guys that will really carry some weight. Now listen, would you go talk to, you see? And do not let anything, and, and say this to Balaam, do not let anything keep you from coming to me because I will reward you handsomely and do whatever you say. Come and put a curse on these people for me. In other words, I'll pay you any price, whatever it costs. Get down here. I need your help. I'll do whatever you say. This guy is desperate. He's utterly desperate. Have you ever done things out of desperation? That you were sorry for later? He's desperate. Balaam answered them, Even if Balak gave me his palace filled with silver and gold, I could not do anything great or small to go beyond the command, now get this, of the Lord my God. Is the Lord his God? No. He is presuming, though, that he has influence and can influence Yahweh. And so he says it rather boldly. Now stay here tonight, as the others did, and I will find out what else the Lord will tell me. In other words, he's saying, let me see if I can change his mind. Now God will at times let people pursue their corrupt ways, but ultimately his purpose will still prevail. So that night God came to Balaam and said, Since these men have come to summon you, go with them, but do only what I tell you. The next day, Balaam gets up, saddles his donkey, goes on his way with the princes of Moab. But, we're told, God was very angry when he went. Now, wait a minute. Why is God angry that he's going? He just said, go with them, didn't he? Why do you suppose God's angry? Is God angry because Balaam is going? I don't think so. Well, if God is not angry because Balaam is going, why is God angry? I think God is angry because of the attitude with which Balaam is going. It's not just the going. That's not really the issue. It's the attitude. 
God's released him to go. And again, God will give us open doors all the time. But you see, just because a door is open doesn't mean that we should go through it. There's a lot of people say, well, I mean, the door was open. There was an opening. Doesn't that mean I should go through it? No. No. You see, if you're just trusting in your circumstances and how your circumstances appear without God had said to him, listen, I'm telling you one time, don't go down there, don't curse those people, for they're blessed. That should have been the end of it. But Balaam, believing he could still influence Yahweh, that he could still have power with him, doesn't settle for that. God knows all this, and he gives him more rope to hang himself with. Be careful. Don't deliberately go the way of Balaam. Don't deliberately follow the error of Balaam and don't believe the doctrine of Balaam. We'll look at those in just a, little, a minute. So God lets him go. But it's his attitude. And his attitude, quite frankly, is that he is not mindful that God is sovereign, his supreme, and Balaam is not lined up with his purpose. Balaam is, in fact, blind to God and what he wants. So he's on his way. Now the donkey he's riding, because of God's anger, the donkey sees an angel, the angel of the Lord, that God sends to block his way, to discipline. In fact, to kill him. And uh, the, angel stands, or the, the angel stands in the way. The donkey sees the angel and turns off the road. And Balaam, in response to the donkey turning off the road, Balaam says, good thing you turn off the road. Right? Thanks for warning me. There must be something wrong. Balaam what? He beats the donkey. Not once, not twice, but three times. Now, you know, there's a very important lesson here for all of us. God will send us messengers into our life. He'll send us messengers to warn us that we're going the wrong way and that our attitude is wrong and that we need to stop and we need to correct our attitude. But very often when God sends those people, because we're so blind to them being messengers of his to us, we in effect beat the messenger. Israel did this all throughout their history, didn't they? And then the one final messenger was who? Jesus. They not only beat him, they nailed him to a cross. And in effect, you and I nailed him to the cross. The same thing is true. We're messengers. We're trying to tell people, hey, hey, there's an angel standing in the way and he's got this huge sword and he's going to lop your head off. But do people listen? Sadly, not often enough. So anyway, this happens three times. Finally, in verse 28, we're told that the Lord opens the donkey's mouth. He makes a donkey able to speak. This is humiliating. <laughs> Sometimes, in God's grace, he'll send a donkey to you to talk to you. Now the donkey says, what have I done to make you beat me these three times? 
Balaam answered the donkey, you've made a fool of me, and if I had a sword in my hand, I'd kill you right now. Great. The donkey said to Balaam, am I not your own donkey? In other words, I'm not a rented donkey. I'm, I'm your donkey. Which you have always ridden to this day. I mean, there's been no other. So in other words, we're real familiar with each other, right? Right, Balaam? And she says, have I been in the habit of doing this to you in the past? In other words, the donkey is saying, there is a obvious problem here, Balaam. <laughs> Open your eyes. Balaam is operating with what I call keyhole theology. He's making decisions based on a little tiny bit of information. It's like looking through a keyhole into a room and with a little bit of information, you make all these great determinations. Whereas if you could open the door and go into the room and see all the other stuff, you'd say, oh, now I see. You wouldn't have made those decisions. So Balaam is blind. God opens his eyes in verse 31. He sees the angel. He's all bummed now. And he turns to the angel and he says, I have sinned, verse 34. Now on the surface, that seems like a good thing, but not really. He says, I did not realize you were standing in the road to oppose me. Now, if you are displeased, I will go back. Balaam still doesn't get the message. He thinks the issue is just going and coming. That's not the issue. The issue is what's his heart attitude? Does he understand who God is and what God's plan is? It's not just whether he goes or whether he doesn't go. It's the attitude that he holds. It's the attitude that he holds. Is he going to acknowledge and glorify God in the supremacy of his will and purpose? Well, he goes on. He gets finally to Balak, and Balak uh, tells him what the issue is. They get right to business. They offer the sacrifices. Then there's a series of four oracles or four <coughs> words that Balaam will utter. Now, they're not curses. Balak has asked him to come down and curse Israel, but God turns him around and puts right into Balaam's own mouth not cursings, but rather what? Blessings. Blessings. This is incredible. God can take people who are arrayed against you if you trust in him, and he can take those people and cause them to, in effect, bless you. What's Romans 8.28 say? God, God will cause all things to work together for the what? The good of those who what? Love him and are called according to his purpose. Great comforting words. Now the first, the first oracle, we won't read it, but just let me summarize it with these quick, this quick sentence. Israel is secure. That's the summary of that first oracle. Israel is secure. God is for Israel, not for Moab. God is going to back Israel, not Moab. And the net effect for Balaam is that he can only envy what God will do. The second oracle, or the second blessing, is summarized in verse 23. There is no sorcery against Jacob, no divination against Israel. The idea is... Balaam is saying, Balak, your plans are absolutely hopeless. God's purposes cannot be changed. 
I have no ability, there's no sorcery, there's no divination that can change or influence and succeed against God's blessings of Israel. I hope this is encouraging to you as God's people. No, no weapon, the Bible says, is formed against you shall prosper. No weapon that's formed against you shall prosper if you are God's chosen people. Now, this, the third oracle is a testimony of the vision for future Israel. And the last verse rehearses, in effect, the Abrahamic promise, the promise that God made to Abraham way back in Genesis chapter 12. And the promise is summed up this way. Whoever blesses you, I'll bless. Whoever curses you, I'll curse. That is a heavy promise. God made that promise. And so God puts into Balaam's mouth a heathen prophet. He puts into his mouth a reiteration of God's promise to his people and makes Balaam utter it. It's a promise of security. It's a promise of universal blessing. When we meet together, the beginning of the service, when I ask you to stand up and greet somebody in the name of the Lord, then what's the second part I ask you to do? Pronounce what? A blessing in the name of the Lord, right? Now you don't, in and of yourself, have inherent power to bless people. It's God's power by His Spirit living in you, using you as a vehicle, your words, your language invested with His power that brings blessing into some other person's life when they believe it. When they, by faith, receive those words. Do you know that I can pronounce words of blessing on you, Miriam? Yeah. Do? You want it? Please, please, please. God chooses to bless His people. Why? Because He loves us. He loves us. And so those who bless you, God is going to turn around and bless them in response. But those who curse you, he says he'll take care of them. That's why Paul says in Romans chapter 12, he says, don't take revenge. It is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. Rather, your job is to what? If your enemy is thirsty, give him something to drink. If he's hungry, give him something to eat. Jesus says, pray for those who persecute you. Love your enemies. Why that emphasis? Because it will keep us from becoming embittered and hardened and unable to receive God's grace. God will take care of the enemy. Our job is to pray for them. And ultimately, to bring them to a place where, where through our prayers, this divine human partnership, they'll probably even get saved. But the bottom line is that we're not to curse them. We're not to curse them. God says, I'll take care of everything. You just do what I say. And we're to bless one another, aren't we? Sure. Sure. So be a blessing. And speak words of blessing. And when someone blesses you, say, thank you very much. I received that. <laughs> and believe by faith that God will, in fact, bless you through that person and through their gracious words to you. The fourth oracle, we see a testimony. This is even more astounding. God puts into Balaam's mouth the prophecy of the messianic kingdom. He says in that second paragraph, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. 
a star will come out of Jacob, a scepter will rise out of Israel. In other words, there's a person who's coming who's going to be a ruler, who's going to rise up out of Israel, and he's going to rule, in fact, all the nations. That's a messianic prophecy. And you see these prophecies all throughout Scripture. But what's amazing is that it's coming out of the mouth of a heathen magician. That's astounding. Is God sovereign? Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, at the end of the passage, at the end of chapter 24, we find that, that Balaam is absolutely incapable, unable to bring about the cursing on Israel that Balak has implored. Balak is frustrated. We're told the last sentence that Balaam got up, returned home, and Balak went his own way. Now, in Numbers chapter 31, verse 16, in that particular passage, you don't need to turn there, I'll just tell you what's going on. Balaam is killed, along with all the Midianites. Now, what we're not too sure of, but apparently, Balaam either came back after he left, either he came back or he sent word to Balak to this effect. Well, we failed in our attempt to get God, Yahweh, to curse his people. Now, this bugs Balaam. You can imagine his prophetic ego. He's failed. He doesn't like to fail. So he's at home laying on his bed thinking, gosh, how can I, how can I get that money? How can I really succeed here? So he sends word back to Balak and he says, look, since we haven't been able to get God to turn away from his people, let's get his people to turn away from him. And when his people turn away from him, surely then he'll curse them. That's the doctrine of Balaam, by the way. Now, the people will turn away. And here is Balaam's advice to Balak. He says, send some Midianite women down into the camp of Israel and allow the women to seduce the men and draw them off into idolatry. And you read in chapter 25, the first five verses, that's exactly what happens. Balak takes Balaam's advice, rounds up some Midianite dollies, sends them right down into the camp, right down into the camp, and these guys go gaga, and they fall into idolatry and the attendant immorality. They're drawn right off. Idolatry and immorality are inseparable. If you're... If you're sitting here and you're in your context of your life, you are presently involved in some form of immorality. You're involved there because you are first involved in idolatry. You can tell me all day long you love the Lord, but if you're immoral and you're living out an immoral lifestyle right now, it's because you are, in fact, involved in idolatry. Read Romans chapter 1. Paul spells that out very clearly. When you turn from God, you have to worship, so you turn to worship something else, generally yourself, and then you begin to satiate your own needs, and one of the greatest human needs is the sex drive, and then you will satiate that need in any way you can, any way you choose, without restraint, because you're an idolater, because you're not worshiping God. And that works its way out in a number of ways. So we see that... Uh, that uh, 
the people are seduced, but God doesn't curse them. He doesn't abandon them as the result of it. He only spanks them. He brings a plague on the camp. 24,000 people die. In fact, one guy has the unmitigated gall to bring a Midianite woman right into his tent under Moses' nose and the nose of all the other elders, and nobody does anything about it except Phineas. Can you imagine this? Sin in the camp, and everybody just kind of pretending it doesn't exist. In the context of the church, we are charged to discipline sin in our midst. We'll see this later on when we get to Joshua. Joshua chapter 7. Very severe discipline. But here's Phineas. Phineas is jealous for God, jealous for his reputation, jealous for holiness. He takes God serious. And he's so incensed that Zimri, and Zimri and this gal are named, by the way, they're immortalized as a classic example of sin against God. That Phineas takes a spear, chases Zimri and this woman down, goes right into Zimri's tent and drives a spear right through both of them. Presumably while they're in the sack together. Kills them dead right there. And God, God says to him, well done, thou good and faithful servant. He does. Read the account. God's pleased. Now, God doesn't want us to kill people. But he wants us to be zealous for what's right. He wants us to stand for what's right. He wants us to stand up as a voice crying in the wilderness and say, this far and no farther, stop! With respect, certainly to our own lives, if not to each other. Now flip over with me to chapter 31 real quick. You see the whole destruction of the Midianites. Jump back to chapter 26. You see the second numbering of Israel. Accounting of all the people. There's roughly the same number, 603,000. The second numbering is not like the first for military purposes. It's more for uh, administering the land and uh, uh, allotting the inheritance for Israel when they go in and promise and, and take possession of the land. Chapter 27, we see Moses asking God for a successor because he knows he's going to die. He's not going to be able to take Israel into the promised land. So he asks God to provide a shepherd who will go in and go out with the people so that the people will not be like sheep without a shepherd. Moses' chief concern is not for himself, but for a suitable successor. Moses' character is outstanding, absolutely outstanding. And then if you go over to chapter 32, this is a significant issue that happens here. The people are poised to go into the land, and what we see presented to us, just as they're getting ready to go over the land, two and a half tribes balk. They say, oh, wait a minute, we're not sure we want to go. They drag their feet. Now here's the key. Here's why they drag their feet. Look at verse 1 of chapter 32. See if this doesn't relate in your life. The Reubenites and the Gadites, and later on the half-tribe of Manasseh, who had very large herds and flocks. That is a very telling statement. It speaks to the issue of the power that our possessions have over us. The power that our position has. 
the fact that uh, these things profoundly affect our attitude toward the promised land. And because of what people possess, because of the position they have, because of what they may stand to lose if they press on with God, they will rather choose to settle for less and not pay the full price. But Jesus assures us that no matter what you give up, if you give up home, father, family, children. Now, he's not telling us to give up our relationships, but what he's saying is have an attitude such that you put the kingdom of God in Jesus first, that no matter what it costs you, he says, I will restore it a hundredfold, both in this life and the next. <coughs> there are precious few people presently in the life of the church who are willing to give that kind of personal investment to their own life. Now, Israel is poised to go possess the promised land. What's the promised land? It's the land of Canaan, isn't it? Right? What's the promised land for you and I, the church? What is it? What is it? Heaven? No, it's not heaven. Think with me. When, they, when Israel goes to take the promised land, aren't, isn't there going to be warfare? Aren't they going to have to fight a battle? It's going to be tough, isn't it? God has already said to them, you will not be able to remove these nations from you, but I will go before you and I'll remove them little by little. You're not going to be able to accomplish this overnight? Heaven is not the promised land. You know what the promised land is for us? Jesus Christ. That the image of Christ be revealed in us more and more and more. Is that not a battle? <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. And there's far too many people who are sitting down and saying, oh, I'm not sure I want to go any further. It's too hard. It's too hard. And I don't want to risk all that I've got here. I don't want to move out of my comfort zone. I want to settle down on this side of the Jordan. Far too many people. I hope I'm ringing lots of bells right now. I hope I'm ringing lots of bells. Don't let your present status quo inhibit you from pressing on and having God cause the image of Christ to be revealed in you more and more and more. I want to be like Jesus more and more and more every day. Do you? Yes. If you said yes and amen, let that yes and amen be a yes and amen. And don't be like the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh who just settle down and say, well, we don't want to risk. We don't want to risk for fear of what we'll lose. And I talk to people about coming to Christ. One of their major objections, though they may not say it, is in the back of their mind, oh, I'm going to have to give up this, I'm going to have to give up that, I'm going to have to give up this, I'm going to have to give up that. And I'll say to them, you're probably thinking that you're going to have to give up this and such, right? Well, yeah, the thought did cross my mind. And I'll say to them, you're right. You're absolutely right. You've got to repent and come to Jesus. But once you come to him and you embrace him, he says that he will pour blessings on you like you've never even begun to imagine. But it's going to be a battle. 
every step of the way. Because your own human nature is going to be arrayed against you. You've got demonic forces arrayed against you. Now you've got the world set against you. And you've got to press on, single-minded. Single-minded. So that's, in effect, what's going on here. Now if you turn over to Numbers chapter 33... We see God speaking to Moses, giving instruction about this very issue to Israel. God says, speak to the Israelites and say to them, when you cross the Jordan into Canaan, drive out all the inhabitants of the land before you. Drive out all the inhabitants of the land before you. What are the inhabitants, what things have been inhabited you prior to becoming a Christian? There are still remnants of those things, those beliefs, those attitudes that are still resident. What are those things? God says, drive them out. Paul reiterates that in Romans chapter 6. He says, do not let sin reign in your mortal body any longer. Amen. Romans chapter 8. Paul says, uh, to put to death the misdeeds of the body by the Spirit. To mortify the body. Discipline. We're to drive these things out. And he says, take possession of the land and settle in it. For I have given you the land to possess. It's a settled issue. Victory is already assured. It's not, oh, I hope I can do this. It's a given you can do it. Go do it. Go engage those things. Go challenge them. Some are more difficult than others. Some are more numerous. But if God is for you, who shall be against you? God is calling us to holiness, just as he called Israel to holiness. He's already laid out the path. He has a plan. He has a purpose. He says, now go for it. And don't be intimidated, and don't give up, and don't ever quit. Keep moving. Keep moving forward, forward. He says, now, if you don't drive out the inhabitants of the land, those you allow to remain will become barbs in your eyes and thorns in your side. And every one of us understand the reality of that statement. When you allow old habits, patterns, ways of thinking, to persist in your life, they become, in effect, a barb in your eye and a thorn in your side. And they trouble you and trouble you and trouble you. They distract you. They keep you from taking full possession of the image of Christ. They inhibit you from becoming more and more Christ-like. What does this world need? This world needs Jesus. This world needs people who are full of Jesus, not full of themselves. Paul says in Galatians chapter 20, or chapter 2, verse 20, he says, it's not I that lives, but it's Christ who lives in me. That's our goal. That's the promised land. And when you're projecting the image of Christ to people, and more and more and more of us are projecting the image of Christ to people, we're going to have a profound effect in this world. A profound effect. Israel was, was supposed to have a profound effect on the world around them. 
They failed miserably. They failed miserably. Now, if you turn to Deuteronomy, I want to quickly survey Deuteronomy with you. Let me just back up a second here to uh, Balaam. I, there's there's uh, a couple comments more I want to make about Balaam that I think are significant. The New Testament speaks about Balaam, three distinct passages. And I've given you these passages in your notes, and I just want to remark on them quickly. In 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 15, 2 Peter 2, 15, Peter writes about the way of Balaam. Not to follow the way of Balaam. The way of Balaam was, in, in essence the prostitution of spiritual things for the sake of money. There's lots of people today following the way of Balaam, uh, doing spiritual things for the sake of money. You have the whole New Age movement invested in the spiritual realm for the sake of personal gain. You have people in the Christian church today prostituting their ministries for the sake of money. That's the way of Balaam. In Jude 11... Jude talks about the error of Balaam, and the error of Balaam, this way of thinking, is the idea, and it's a secret idea, it's something you hold within yourself, that you can somehow circumvent God's will while still presenting a facade that you believe and trust and obey his word. That's called hypocrisy. The Pharisees were notorious for that. That's the error of Balaam. Don't fall prey to thinking that you can somehow circumvent God's plan and purpose and yet seem like you're doing what's right. People do it all the time. Well, I love the Lord. Well, then why don't you obey him? Well, it's not convenient. They won't say that, but that's the truth. Revelation chapter 2.14 speaks of the doctrine of Balaam, and John writes about this. The doctrine of Balaam is the counsel to ruin by seduction those who cannot be cursed by permission. And that's exactly what Balaam did when he counseled Balak to send the Midianite women down into the camp to seduce them because he couldn't get God to curse them. So that's the doctrine. And certainly, Satan will try every effort to seduce you, to seduce you away from God. All right? You know who the New Testament counterpart is to Balaam, by the way? Judas. Judas. There's three, three things that are parallel in their life. Balaam knew God, knew about God. Balaam talked with God. Judas knew the Lord. He believed that Jesus was the Messiah. But just like Balaam had a different agenda for God, Judas had a different agenda for Jesus. And when Balaam couldn't induce God to do what he wanted... He induced the people to turn away from God. When Judas couldn't induce Jesus to follow his agenda, then Judas was used to induce the people to turn away from Jesus and indeed to crucify him. And so you see the parallels, both very, very tragic uh, figures in the Old and New Testament. Now let's look at Deuteronomy. The first 11 chapters you will, should have read this week, I want to just cover them quickly with you. The word Deuteronomy comes from two Greek words. The first word is deuteros. The second word is nomos. Deuteros means two. Nomos means law. The second giving of the law. 
That's all it means. It's the second time that Moses is going to rehearse the law, but now to the second generation that's going to go in and receive the promised land. It's broken down into two major sections. The first 11 chapters, as we read through them, look backward. They talk about and discuss and review for Israel their history from Sinai as well as the giving of the law from Sinai. So you have this backward perspective in the first 11 chapters. And then in the balance of the book, from chapter 12 on to chapter 34, you have a forward look. God is giving them a forward look about uh, the rules, the warnings, and so forth uh, before entering into their inheritance. So it's broken into those two major sections. In both sections, you see reflected the central message of Deuteronomy. The central message of Deuteronomy is the faithfulness of God. God is faithful. No matter what's going on, God is faithful to his plan, to his purpose, to his people. He is faithful. And this is comforting even in the face of rebellion. God is faithful. Jesus said, I'll never leave you, I'll never forsake you. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 that God is faithful, verses 8 and 9. You can read those yourself. Now there's three basic principles to Deuteronomy. If you understand these three basic principles, you'll understand all of not only the teaching of Deuteronomy, but the entire history of the Old Testament. You'll understand the entire teaching of the Old Testament if you understand these three basic principles to the book of Deuteronomy. The first one is this. The basic fact. What is the basic fact? If you turn to chapter 6, verses 4 and 5, here's the basic fact. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. The basic fact, there's only one God. Nobody else. That's the basic fact. Israel, you're to grab a hold of this in the face of all the things around you. There's only one God. He's your God, loving with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. That's the basic, fundamental fact. We believe there's one God. We're not part of this great ecumenical movement that's seeking to embrace all beliefs, be nice people, let's be polite to everybody and accept everybody's beliefs. Christianity and Judaism are extremely intolerant. The Lord your God is one. There is no other. There is no other. Now, within the context of verse 4, there's two Hebrew words I want to point out that carry with them tremendous significance. The first Hebrew word is Elohenu. Elohenu comes from the root word Elohim. It is a plural word. If you were to translate it literally, it would be God's. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God's is one. That's a very interesting distinctive reflected linguistically. But it's always translated singularly, or I should say interpreted singularly, but translated plural. The Lord your God is one. Now the word one, echad, is a word means one. There's, there's several words that mean one in Hebrew, but this is a word that has with it, it means a collective oneness. A collective oneness. There's another Hebrew word, yashid, which means absolute oneness. But that's not the word that's used. So he says, in effect, 
Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one in a collective sense. What in the world is he driving at? There's plurality to God. What do you mean? The whole Bible explains it. Over and over and over. It starts in Genesis chapter 1. If you go back to verses 26 through 28, God in creating man in his image says, let us make man in our image. You see right in the beginning God testifying that he exists in plural form. What do you mean? Father, Son, and Spirit. Those three personages are pointed out over and over and over and over, Old Testament and New Testament. God exists as three distinct persons. Jesus says himself, he says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And yet at the same time, he prays to the Father. He says, I and the Father are one. Peter, when he rebukes Ananias and Sapphira in the book of Acts, he says, don't you know that you've lied to the Holy Spirit? You've lied to God? And Isaiah chapter 9, the great Messianic prophet, speaking about a child who would be born to Israel, one who would sit on King David's throne and rule forever. He said, this child's name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. I mean, the whole Bible, all the New Testament is so full of so many obvious hints. And right here in the Shema, the great word to Israel to identify who God is, right there Israel has stated to it that God exists in plural form. We know that as the Trinity. That, beloved, is the basic fact. Now the basic truth is found also in chapter 6, verse 23. This is the basic truth. If you understand the fact... Now you look at the truth. This God who is one, but existing in a plural form, what has he done? Well, he has brought us out. He brought Israel out of Egypt, slavery in Egypt. For you and I, the same thing is true. He's brought us out of the slave market of sin. Paul writes in Colossians chapter 1, verse 13, we have been rescued from the domain of darkness. And we've been transformed or, or transferred to the kingdom of God's Son whom He loves. So He brought us out. Why did He bring us out? So He could bring us in. He brought us out by His power and by His grace He brings us in to a very precious place. A very safe place. A haven. Salvation. Why has He brought us out to bring us in? The third basic truth is that he promised Abraham he'd do it. He promised Abraham he'd do it. That's why he does it. He keeps his word. He is faithful. God is faithful. Do we deserve it? Absolutely not. Therefore, the basic requirement, the basic requirement is found in chapter 10, verses 12 and 13. Notice the first two words of verse 12 in Deuteronomy 10. And now, and now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, 
and to serve the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I am giving you today, underline these next four words, for your own good. Ask yourself this question. Do I fear the Lord? Do I fear the Lord? Do I walk in all his ways? Do I love him? And do I serve him with all my heart, with all my soul? And do I observe his commands and decrees that he gave me for my own good? Reflect on that question, because that, beloved, is the basic requirement. That's our response. It's all wrapped up in one word, one sentence, Ecclesiastes chapter 12. He says, when it's all said and done, this applies to every person. Fear God and obey his commands. Fear God and obey his commands. So we conclude this section. We'll pick it up again next week. Be reading, be preparing, be thinking. We're going to discuss the laws of Israel next week. Pray with me. I'll get your question after, okay?